is a spoonful of medicine, topping up your paediatric knowledge one spoonful at a time. On today's episode, we're talking not about a specific condition, but about a procedure or a device that you may have seen on the ward, in ED, or even in the ICU. We're chatting about chest drains. Kids need them for a whole host of reasons, and often when you see a kid with it, it can be a bit intimidating when you don't quite know what it is or how to make sense of all the terminology. So, join me today as we demystify chest drains and talk about how they're inserted, what they're needed for, and how to problem solve them. Cool, let's crack on and go. Let's start off with the basics, like, well, what is a chest drain? A chest drain, which is also known as a chest tube or intercostal catheter, a thoracic catheter, a tube thoracostomy, or even an intercostal drain, they all mean the similar thing, is essentially a tube that is inserted through the chest wall and into the pleural space in order to remove a substance such as air, excess fluid, blood, chyle or pus from the intrathoracic cavity. There are many types of intracostal catheters or chest drains, and they're separated into small bore and large bore catheters, depending on how wide the lumen is, usually measured in French gauge. A small bore catheter can include things like straight catheters as well as pigtail catheters that, you guessed it, look like a pigtail. Essentially, the bigger the child, the larger the drain can be. There are formulas in choosing what size of catheter you can use, and they include the ETT size times 4, or 4 times 8 over 4 plus 4, or even more conveniently, there's just a bunch of tables that can tell you what size drain suits what child, so look up your local guidelines. Nonetheless, which drain to choose and what size depends on the situation, the clinicians and the patient. For example, small ball chest tubes are used as first line in the treatment for things like a pneumothorax or a simple pleural effusion and simple empyemas because they cause less trauma to the chest wall and can be less painful for the patient. Large bore chest tubes are used when the secretions or whatever you're trying to drain is far more viscous or there's a hemothorax or complex effusion. So why may someone need a chest drain? Think about the times that you've seen someone with a chest drain. What do they have wrong with them? Essentially, you need a chest drain when you need to get something out of the pleural space because it's causing a bit of trouble. That something may be blood or a hemothorax, air, pneumothorax, chyle, chylothorax, or pus, empyema. Any of these things disrupt the normal negative intrathoracic pressure in the pleural space on inspiration. Let's break that down. If we remember, it is this negative pressure when our diaphragm goes down and our ribs move out when we breathe in that opens up our lungs. Something in that pleural space prevents us from making as much negative pressure and thus prevents us from expanding our lungs and breathing efficiently. Also, stuff in the pleural space can cause a mass effect on the adjacent lung and then we can squish the lung, which is not great either. Ultimately, it all leads to unopposed elastic recoil of that lung as well as a mass effect of pushing it closed, which results in collapse or atelectasis. When a lung is collapsed, there is shunting of blood due to a ventilation-perfusion mismatch 
This results in poor oxygenation, an increased work of breathing, and increased infection risk as well as worsening respiratory status. So, in order to ameliorate all of this, a chest strain can be placed to give the blood, air, chyle or pus a route to exit from the intrathoracic cavity and thus allow the lung to re-expand and your patient to get better. Okay, so before we talk about inserting chest strains, we need to revise a bit of anatomy because the anatomy of the chest wall is really important to think about when preparing for and inserting chest strains. It's also something that they love to ask on exams and on the ward round. So listen up. The first thing to talk about is the triangle of safety. You may have heard of it. It's essentially a safe triangle for where chest strains are inserted. And it's safe because it avoids damage to the underlying chest wall muscles, breast, as well as internal structures and organs. Often you may be asked about what are the borders of this triangle? Anteriorly, it is the lateral border of the pectoralis major. Inferiorly, it is a horizontal line at the level of the nipples, which is roughly the fifth intercostal space. And posteriorly, it's bordered by the latissimus dorsi. The drains are usually inserted in this triangle at the level of about the fourth intercostal space in the mid-axillary line. The next anatomy point is about where do you insert it in the intercostal space? Well, you need to know where the neurovascular bundle is within the rib cage. Essentially, between each of the ribs lies the intercostal spaces, which are breached by the intercostal muscles. Each intercostal space has a nerve, artery and vein running through it. These vessels actually lie and run just under the rib in the costal groove on the lower aspect of each rib. This means that when you insert a chest strain, it should be inserted just above the upper border of the rib in order to avoid the neuromuscular bundle because no one wants too much bleeding and so much pain. The third anatomy point is the long thoracic nerve. The long thoracic nerve runs down the lateral border of the thorax and you really want to avoid it when you insert a chest strain. And so, for this reason, chest strains should be inserted anterior to it. And this lies about in the middle axillary line, just under your armpit, essentially. And finally, to state the obvious, in the thorax and also in the right upper quadrant and left upper quadrant of the abdomen, we have some very important organs like the heart, aorta, on the left side, the spleen, and on the right side, the liver. So you must always be very careful and not hit any of them. Because if you do, that's bad, bad news. Now it's time to insert the chest drain. Like any procedure, it is incredibly important to be prepared and set up well. Sounds obvious, but it is probably the biggest thing you need to do. So you need to make sure that you've consented the patient and their family. You also want to make sure that you have all the equipment. You know where you're inserting the chest drain, both anatomically as well as practically. Are you in ED? Are you in ICU? You want to make sure that you have enough assisting clinicians to help you. That may be other doctors as well as nursing staff. You also need to make sure that you have analgesia sorted for the patient. They may need some sedation in order to help you do the procedure. 
And also, you need a specimen collection pot if you're draining out fluid or an empyema. You may also need an ultrasound device in order to mark the best point in where to insert the chest drain, but also to help you insert it during the procedure with ultrasound guidance. So, step one, set yourself up. Next, we're going to start inserting the chest drain. And chest drain insertions are a sterile procedure. So you need to do your hand hygiene and a surgical scrub and wear a sterile gown as well as gloves. You need to position the patient correctly so you have good access to your point of insertion and then start properly cleaning the area. Next, you insert some local anesthetic in the tract in which you're going to insert the chest drain and you stop when you're at the pleural space. Once that local anesthetic is all working, you place a needle with a syringe on it remember over the top of the rib and confirm the position within the pleural space by aspirating either air or fluid. Next you insert a guide wire through that needle and this guide wire stays in place. You take out the needle, insert a dilator to widen that track. Sometimes you may need to cut the skin in order to facilitate this and once that dilator is through you take it off the wire and then insert the chest drain over that wire. You need to ensure that all of the holes of the catheter are actually inside the thorax. Once that chest drain is in, you take out the wire and then close off the cock stop so you make sure no more air gets into that chest. Once that's done, you can attach the drain to the patient and that may be secured either with dressings or with suturing and then attach the tubing to the canister. That canister, remember, is an underwater seal and it creates a one-way valve mechanism that will let air and fluid come out of the pleural space and collect in your canister and prevent the outside air or fluid from entering back into the pleural space. Once a chest drain is in and secured, you get a chest x-ray to look at the position of that chest drain because although we angle up or down or left or right in relation to where we're wanting to position the chest drain, ultimately it's inserted blind and a chest x-ray will confirm the positioning where it is and make sure that we have a baseline. While whenever we do chest drains, we do them very carefully and only if the patient definitely needs one, Sticking a needle into somebody's chest is not without risk. And if you're doing it on the ward, in ED or ICU, essentially anywhere that's not under image guidance, you're essentially inserting it blind. And so you need to be careful and aware of the complications. These include damage to underlying structures. That can be things like the thoracic duct, that neurovascular bundle, the underlying lung, or any intrathoracic organ such as the esophagus, as well as heart and aorta. Pain or chest wall numbness can occur and that can be because you've hit a nerve or just because of the procedure itself can be quite painful. Some patients may need a patient-controlled analgesia or nurse-controlled analgesia at the beginning in order to help them feel comfortable. You can get a recurrent pneumothorax or you can give the patient a pneumothorax because essentially you've given the patient a penetrating chest wound. If you hit an artery, you can cause an intercostal artery bleed can cause re-expansion pulmonary edema if you drain off a whole heap of fluid from that intercostal or interpleural space. And finally, you may not be successful. The chest drain may either fail or the chest drain may become blocked and the need for another chest drain in the future may be there. So when you're consenting a patient and their family, you need to be aware of all of these potential complications and so should they.
Now that the chest strain is in, there's a bit of terminology when taking care of chest strains as well as troubleshooting them. So let's have a look at that. The first two things are swinging and bubbling. If you have a look at the fluid in the tubing of a chest strain, you may notice that it rises with inspiration and falls with expiration. And this is due to changes in intrathoracic pressure. When someone breathes in, there's more negative pressure. This causes the fluid in the tubing to be sucked towards the patient. When someone breathes out, there's less negative pressure, well really there's positive pressure, and this pushes the fluid away from the patient and towards the drain canister. So TLDR, swinging tells you if the drain is in the pleural space or not. Next we have bubbling. The drain will initially bubble spontaneously as the increased intrathoracic pressure caused by a pneumothorax forces air out of the pleural space, down the tubing and into the underwater seal. As this pressure reduces and the pneumothorax gets better, the bubbling will only occur when the patient is coughing. So, bubbling essentially tells you if there's air still draining out of the thorax. If there's bubbles, there's air. And if there's no bubbles, well, you're inclined to think there's no air. Now that we know what swinging and bubbling mean, we can talk about troubleshooting drains. If you see a drain that had stopped swinging or you're called to review a drain that has stopped swinging, this means that there could be a blockage somewhere between the canister and the tip of that tube. This could mean the tube is blocked or kinked inside the patient. It could be kinked up against the chest wall or even from the canister and the tubing being folded over or kinked over the bedside. So the main thing to do in this situation is to have a good look at all of the tubing from the canister to the patient and also think about, is this chest drain blocked? So stop swinging, think blocked drain. Next is if a tube stops bubbling. This means that there is no more air to be drained out of that pleural space and the lung has likely re-expanded. This is what you would expect as a pneumothorax resolves and gets better and is a good thing, as long as there's still swinging. Or in other words, the drain is still in the right position and not blocked. If a previously bubbling chest drain slowly peters out over days and stops bubbling, that's probably a good thing and means that the pneumothorax has been treated. But if a previously bubbling drain suddenly stops, you must check if there's a blockage anywhere. And is that the reason why it stopped bubbling? So a drain that stops bubbling over time is a good thing, means that the pneumothorax is resolved, but a drain that suddenly stops bubbling, you need to double check. But now what if you have the opposite problem? This drain is just persistently bubbling a lot. If a drain is persistently bubbling, this suggests that there's a persistent air leak. And that air leak can be air coming into the drain anywhere from, again, the canister to the insertion point or from a bronchopleural fistula. So the way that you troubleshoot this situation is you can use clamps to figure out where the air leak is. If you clamp down on the tubing near the point of insertion at the patient and the bubbling is still going on, it makes you think, is this air getting in because of the tubing or the canister? But if you clamp near the patient and all the bubbling stops, it makes you think, hmm, is this air leak either from where you've inserted the catheter or from inside the patient, i.e. a bronchopleural fistula? 
Another point to note with bubbling chest strains is that if there's ongoing bubbling due to a pneumothorax, you must never clamp that drain because if you clamp it, air can't escape anywhere and that pneumothorax is going to get worse. So you need to keep a chest drain open until all of the bubbling stops. The next thing that could happen is that the connection between your intercostal catheter and the actual tubing to the canister comes apart and this can happen for a whole host of reasons and in paediatrics that kid can be very mobile and agile at times. So if that connection between the drain and the tubing connecting to the underwater seal comes apart, the first thing to do is stay calm and reach for the clamp and clamp the tube to prevent any more air sucking into the chest wall via your drain that you put in. Then you can reconnect the tubing and unclamp the drain and Bob's your uncle, you've saved the day. The last common issue with drains that I want to talk about is if that drain falls out. It's happened to me before. What you do in the first instance is cover up that hole with an occlusive dressing, something with plastic, because cotton or gauze will just allow air to come back through. Then you need to decide if this drain is actually still needed or if the patient is getting better and can do without that. Usually that is a consultant decision. And a combination of clinical and exam as well as chest x-ray findings can help you with that. If the decision is made to reinsert a chest strain, you need to use a different spot and through a different incision. Finally, it goes without saying that if there's issues with swinging, bubbling, connections or drains falling out, you must always clinically review the patient and make sure that they are okay like you would any other issue in any other ward. Now that we know all about putting chest drains in and looking after them, what about taking them out? Firstly, when do you take one out? This will vary with the situation and is always consultant-led. But really, the general things you want to know beforehand are, is the child clinically improving? And do you have a chest x-ray to support that? Like, is a pneumothorax going away or is that effusion now resolved? Next, you want to make sure there's reducing or no fluid output from that drain, and that is roughly less than 4 mils per kilo per day over two consecutive days. Next, you want to make sure there's no bubbling for at least 24 hours, because you don't want a pneumothorax to reaccumulate. Next, you want to clamp the tube for about 8 to 24 hours to make sure that the patient can do without the drain and things are going to go well before you pull the tube. And finally, you want to make sure that there's no vigorous bubbling when you unclamp that drain. Essentially, you want to really avoid a pneumothorax there. Once everyone from the nursing staff, you as well as your consultant are happy that the chest drain can come out, how do you remove it? Firstly, you need to clamp that tube. Next, you position the child and remember, give them some analgesia and they may need a little bit of sedation as well because taking your chest drain out isn't very comfortable. Next, you remove the dressings as well as whatever you tethered the, the drain with. This may be a suture or a dressing. Next, you need to instruct the child to take a big breath in and hold it while you remove the drain. Essentially, you're asking them to do a Valsalva maneuver. The reason you do this is because it ensures that there's positive intrapleural pressure when the drain is coming out to prevent air from being sucked back in to the open chest wound from where that drain just was. Once that drain is pulled out in a nice swift motion, you quickly flatten where the drain site is and apply a sterile occlusive dressing. There you've done it. That chest drain is out. Well done. 
Okay, you know what that means. Time for a recap. A chest drain or chest tube is a tube that is inserted through the chest wall into the intrapleural space in order to drain out fluid or air. There's many types of chest drains, but which one you need for your clinical situation depends on the patient as well as what you're trying to achieve. The indications for a chest drain is if there's fluid in the form of blood, pus or chyle, or if there's air or pneumothorax that you need to drain. Before inserting a chest drain, it's important to be aware of the thoracic anatomy, including the triangle of safety, where the neurovascular bundle sits in relation to the ribs, where the long thoracic nerve is, and where all the intrathoracic organs lie in relation to your point of insertion. Next, setting up and inserting the chest drain is important to do well. You need to make sure that you have the right people, the right equipment, as well as remember this is a sterile procedure and should be done under sterile conditions. Once that chest drain is in, you need to look at things like bubbling and swinging within the canister to make sure that this chest drain is functioning well. Over time, as your patient gets better, they will no longer need a chest drain. And things to look out for in order to suggest this include them getting clinically better, reducing outputs, and no more bubbling. Finally, when you remove the chest drain, it's important to give adequate analgesia ahead of time and make sure that the patient is performing a valsalva maneuver or expiring when taking the chest drain out because you want to avoid a pneumothorax. And finally, you must dress it with an occlusive chest dressing. And that's been this week's episode of A Spoonful of Medicine. Thank you so much for joining us. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and tell a friend. For the visual learners of us out there, head over to our Instagram page at spoonful.of.medicine for a quick summary of today's episode, along with some other great educational content. If you'd like to get in touch, have a suggestion for a future episode, or have heard something that you think needs a correction, please email us on spoonfulofmedicinepodcast at gmail.com. It's been a pleasure chopping up your paediatric knowledge one spoonful at a time. I can't wait for you to join us on our next episode. But until then, bye.